two pressing questions, and maybe, maybe it's one of these questions that originally led you to a church in the first place. Maybe it's, it's one of the questions that has you here this morning. The first question we're going to look at is this. If God is good and all-powerful, then why all the bad? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there so much evil in the world? And when we look at that, really a bigger part of that is this question, why do I hurt? Because we can answer that in a theoretical kind of a way. We can answer that and ask those questions in a real experiential kind of way. The second question that's going to be addressed from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke this morning is this question, where is Jesus? Jesus went away and promised to come back. It's almost 2020. Where is he? So why do I hurt and where is God? Do these questions sound familiar? I mean, these, these cut to some of the very core of, of our, our own biggest doubts and fears and wonderings and leaning in to listen close for an answer. I want everyone to take their hand for a moment. I want it to face you. I want you to look at your hand, okay? Now, while you're doing that, um, this isn't immodest. Just take a peek at your neighbor's hand, okay? Look over at your neighbor's hand. You know what your hand is like? Your hand represents pain. Hold it there for one second. Every one of you looked at your own fingertips and you saw them. You all have fingertips, So every single person in this room has pain, but everyone's pain is as unique as your own fingerprint. So we all experience pain. You can put your hand down now. We all experience pain. Every single person you ever come across will have pain, evil, and suffering in their life, questions they'll wrangle with. But you know what? The way you experience pain, the accumulation of suffering, evil, and pain that's in your life is as unique as your fingerprint. I want to show you a video really quick, and there's a ton going on in a minute and 46 seconds, so I want you to listen really carefully and watch really carefully. Frank Turek is an apologist who travels around. He's spoken at our church before, and he uses this sometimes. Inevitably, at college campuses, people will address this question. Why, if God is good, if God is all-powerful, is there so much evil, pain, and suffering in the world? And what he says, I love how he addresses this video. He sometimes shows this video, and he says this. He says, this isn't a complete answer. This is a doorway to an answer. So this is just sort of to get us thinking. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen and watch carefully, because like I said, there's a lot going on. So let me warn you that this morning's text and the questions that are raised, um, it may lead to more questions. <laughs> it may lead to even more questions than answers, but I also am convinced that if we look carefully at the scriptures um, and let God lead us, there's there's some real firm footing to stand on. The Advent season is a season of looking back and remembering the first Christmas, the first appearance of Jesus Christ. We've also been talking about how providential it is that in this Gospel of Luke, Jesus is talking all about his return, his second Advent. It'll be the greatest holiday Christians can imagine. It's Easter and Christmas combined, but even so much bigger. And this morning, we're going to both remember and look back as we celebrate communion. 
We're also going to look forward as we celebrate communion. We're going to remember and look back as we look at the scriptures, but we're also going to let that inform our future. If you're new with us, I just want to say welcome. Uh, There's some cards in the back of the seat that we'd love to just get to know you, um, and we just jot down an email or text, phone number, whatever's comfortable for you. But we have a couple of traditions here. One is that we celebrate communion regularly. Um, we also sing. Uh, we also open God's word. And the other thing we do is we, we, give, uh, we give money. And, and that's, a, that's a, an act of worship. And so we're going to do that over this next song. This next song is an old Christmas hymn that's a little bit less familiar than some. But it's so, so fitting for this idea of the return of Jesus Christ. So let's sing this together. All right, the rest of you can open up to Luke chapter 13. That's where we're at. Last week we saw two really clear action points from Jesus. The first was just the idea there's a cost of ownership to having Jesus, that there's a price tag to followership, that the gift is free, but that division is a byproduct of it. It comes, it comes with the call to follow Jesus. And the idea that you decide for yourself to answer God's call. Anyone else trying to train their children not to answer their phone for them when they hear it ringing? Uh, we get this all the time. Like someone, you know, calls and they hit the little green button because kids know how to answer the call and they walk up to you and you're like, I have no idea. I'm not ready for this phone call, whatever. Um, each one, it's as simple as a child being able to decide whether or not to follow Jesus. It's that simple. But each one must decide for himself or herself. This morning, uh, Jesus really presses the point of how urgent of a decision it is and what's at stake for us as followers. I want to walk through the title really quickly. The idea that, um, that period is both a punctuation and it's a duration of time. So when it says grace period, it means this, that grace is enough, end of sentence, period. We're going to get the full weight of that this morning. We're going to celebrate that in communion. We've actually been singing this already. Um, what do we stand on? What's our firm fitting? What releases us? Why would we have rest in God from our fears and from our sin? It's grace, period. That means grace plus nothing else. End of sentence. But most of us in this room are bill payers. And we understand the idea of a grace period, right? That means it's also a length of time. It's not only a punctuation ending a sentence, it's also a length of time. And Jesus tells this short little parable that basically is communicating this idea. We, right now, are in a grace period. Do grace periods have a beginning point and an end point? Say yes. Absolutely. We all understand that. We understand by virtue of the fact that it's a grace period that there's something that's already due of us and that we're in this period, but that window of opportunity is closing. I want to start this morning by looking at the problem of evil. This is, how, uh, this is how theologians term it, is the problem of evil. It's kind of an understated problem, I would say. Um, in common vernacular, we're like, yeah, problem indeed. There is a huge problem with evil. That's a Pablo Picasso painting. He seems to capture the problem of good and evil and suffering uh, pretty well here. It's really interesting, by even looking at how we discuss the problem of evil, even if we don't use that term, it's interesting sort of just with 
with, within ourselves, within church community, with those uh, who, who may not be believers, uh, the way that the f- questions are phrased. There's two telling realities that we aren't puzzled or troubled by. Let me walk you through them. The first is this. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, if God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? Ever hear that question raised? Yeah. Ever ask it? Yeah. Here's what's curious. Whoever is asking that question in a demanding kind of way, yeah, well, if God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't this happen? Here's what they are presupposing. They are not including themselves in the evil that must be stopped. A viable answer might be this. Well, if he does, if he started right now, who's to say he wouldn't start with you and me? For all the evil, the good left undone, and the pain and suffering we've caused. So it's curious that when we ask that question, when people ask that question, they are not including themselves. It's it's never dawned on them in some cases that they would include themselves in that. Here's the second one. So often we are shocked when bad things happen to good people. We get outraged. We wonder what's going on. But here's what's curious. We aren't shocked when good things happen to bad people. So it inverts the astonishment, right? Far more common, is it not, that people are outraged that there are bad things happening to good people than there, than there is outrage that there are good things. And if you look for it even semi-carefully, constantly happening to good people. God sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's what Jesus speaks to. He speaks to this, and he basically is going to misdirect. He's going to show our misdirected amazement and steer us in a right direction. So I've broken this passage into into three sections. We're going to look at all 17 verses, the first 17 verses. Uh, Let me read uh, together with you uh, verses 1 to 5, asking this question. Why all the bad? Here's the short answer. Let the bad news lead you to good news. Verse 1, Luke 13 says this. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, an astonishingly disgusting thing uh, for a Jewish person. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus gets bad news brought to him. Jesus uses the occasion to bring up worse news that, hey, there's other calamities going on, and if you don't repent, that same pronouncement, that same effect is going to land on you. So he gets bad news, he describes even worse news, and then he leads, he, he's pointing to the great news. We just look, looked last week at what we called climate geniuses um, who were not able to interpret the times. 
Remember, it's people who can predict the weather and know all the reasons of why things were, but they can't interpret the present times. Remember, the times was not chronos. It's not chronology, calendars, dates, those kinds of things. I think Silicon Valley is phenomenal at that. It was charon. It was the other idea of time, time as gift, time as season, time as opportunity. This grace period is a time. It's a season. And what we see here, curiously enough, is Jesus just calling out the sort of social geniuses of the day, calling them out that they can't interpret the present times. They don't know what's really going on, the real storyline. And here, some news is brought to Jesus, and he's going to expose the fact that they don't really know what's going on. His question sort of peels back what they were thinking. They must be worse the worst of the Galileans, that's why it happened to them. Here's the logic that he is revealing. And by the way, if we don't interpret our times, look at how easy it is for misinterpretation to seep into our consciences and our own storyline. And we tell the story of what God's doing, what God's up to, what people are about. And so Jesus wants to expose the faulty logic of it. Here's the faulty logic. Ready? He's exposing this faulty logic. Those must be bad people to have all that bad stuff happening to them. Now, these poor ancient people, right? I mean, we have just, we have evolved and grown in technology and understanding so much so that we don't ever think this way anymore. This was an ancient primitive kind of thinking or not. People today, I think this is a wildly common way of thinking. People will often attach the word karma to it. They will attach the word destiny to it. Well, it was just fate that it happened. There's all kinds of religious names for it as well. The religious and irreligious of our day, 2019, Silicon Valley, have some of this same faulty logic in our own stories and in assigning blame to other people. Here's what karma-type thinking leads to. It leads to either self-righteousness. The self-righteous person says this, towers fell, sucks to be you. Glad I'm not you. You probably deserved it. That can lead to a real self-righteous person. Or it can lead to a really fearful person. The fearful person is more honest with themselves. They're more in touch with their own faults. And they think to themselves, Man, what's going to keep towers from falling on my head? So you're either self-righteous with a karma worldview, you're really fearful, or I think a third category would be that you're exhausted. Who's the exhausted person? The exhausted person is this. It's the scale, right? How much good have I done? Does it outweigh the bad? Am I, am I keeping this kind of junk out of my future and out of the future of my family? or the business I run, or whatever I might be trying to achieve. So this kind of faulty logic is so prevalent today. In fact, this is the faulty logic that misdiagnosed what was going on with Jesus. One of the things I love about this time of the year is that in all these different sort of secular settings... I hear prophecy of scripture read in a Christmas hymn. I see signs where I'm like, I know that. That's a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. That's plastered on a, on a wall trying to sell me something. It's just kind of neat to find these little hints of truth everywhere. 
Listen to this passage from Isaiah, read all the time around this time of year. Isaiah 53. Yet it was for our weakness he carried, and it was our sorrow that weighed him down. And listen to how New Living Translation puts it for the misdiagnosis, the faulty logic of what was really going on with Jesus. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. There's a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus died. It goes on to say, for his own sins. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. Do you guys see it? There's a misinterpreting of the, of, of the times. What was really going on was not that God was punishing Jesus for his sin. There was an entirely different story going on with the pain, evil, and suffering. So here's what I put out to you at the very front. Could it be, and I would say yes, it is. Could it be that the way you are looking at pain, evil, and suffering, even either from a theoretical point, because you're not in the midst of it right now, or from the depths of the valley of the shadow of death, where a lot of times our judgment is clouded, could it be that God is doing something far bigger, far more grand and glorious, far more redemptive and good that shows off his power that we can't see in the moment? How you interpret events in your life, write this down because this didn't make it into community questions, but I think it should have. It might be a really important one for us to discuss. How you interpret the events of your life may just be more important than the events that occur in your life. So how you interpret events might actually outweigh the events themselves. Remember, pain is like a fingerprint. We all have our different events that occur in our life. We've all grown up in families where a nuclear bomb went off in the family and some of the siblings went some way and some of the siblings went a different way. So how you interpret the events that go on in your life may just be more important than the events themselves. Let's think about what makes the news for a moment. Natural wonders or natural disasters? Which is it? Natural disasters. All the people who didn't perpetrate crime and have crime committed against them, or all the people perpetrating crime and having suffering and things happen against them? The second one. It's always the bad news. Bad news then, as now is, is major clickbait. Now, if you were from a certain generation, I remember being completely bored with news going on in the background, uh, and at some point I got old, because now I watch the news, um, and some of you receive your news uh, in this sort of way. The headline might read something like this, Galileans seeing red after government desecration. Right, like That would be the headline, you'd hear Tom Brokaw's voice or some current person, and that would be the headline of sort of grabbing, and that's, that's going to grab people to like keep them watching through the commercial break. Here's how the second one might read. Siloam Tower tragedy, 18 dead. I, I used to be a paper boy. This would be splashed across the, the, the newspaper. Like, anyone still read the newspaper? Let me see your hands. Own, own this. Own it. Yes, one. I love that. I see it at Starbucks all the time. I'm like, wow, they still sell those things. That's so cool. Um, thank you for that honesty and owning. That's, that's courage. I love it. Um, so that's, that's some of you. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Newspapers, you're like, I think I read about that in a history book. Here's a different way. Uh, if, if you're from the web generation, then you're scrolling and you would see something like this, right? And that would be your clickbait on your phone. You're like, oh man, what's that pilot up to now? Or you might see the second one. You heard about some tragedy and it's this blurred out picture. You're like, oh, I shouldn't look. And you click on it. 
Why? There's something in us that sort of loves bad news. Isn't that weird? Man, we, we, we sort of want to know this. We, we kind of want to know what's happening. People bring bad news to Jesus. It's a wicked calamity. This is something that's been wrong to someone else by a person. Notice Jesus' reaction. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't shush it down. He says, oh yeah, you've got that one. Let me bring up another one. What he brings up is something we might call an accident, a natural disaster. Why did the tower fall? We're not entirely sure. Both of these events are lost to history. There's historians like Josephus and others who sort of like triangulate on these biblical witnesses. This was just lost to history, both of these events. There's an insurance form checkbox that says, act of God, (laughs) right? All of a sudden, we're believers when bad stuff happens to us. So there's calamities like direct wickedness put on someone, and then there's accidents. Think about your own life. Doesn't your pain and suffering, like as you track back, there are things you can directly attribute to someone who perpetrated evil. There are other things you just go, I don't even know who to blame. Oftentimes, our blame begins to just sort of generally sift upwards. So Jesus brings up both of these, and he asks this question, or he makes this statement. He makes a repeated statement, in fact, that unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is interpreting the current events in light of reality, and he starts with this shocking, startling truth, basically saying this, you guys are asking the wrong question. Is God a God of comfort? Is Jesus an approachable person who provides a word of healing and a comfort and a gentle touch? Yes. But do you see also that different situations call for different things? And when people are coming to this person and saying, hey, this thing happened, well, Jesus adds another one that must be common, common word on the street at the time, and he's exposing the faulty thought. He says, instead of asking, why did it fall on their head, ask this question, why didn't it fall on my head? He uses really hard news to tell a really hard truth, because he hates them and wants their day to get worse. No, he loves them, and he wants to lead them to something even deeper than both of these. These people are astonished, but it's at the wrong thing. Last week, I gave you some John Bunyan, right, from the book uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. This week, I want to give you some Jonathan Edwards, another really old guy. Jonathan Edwards once asked his congregation to give him one reason why God hadn't destroyed them since they got up that morning. Pretty cool to be in John Edwards' church. That's cool. Um, He asked them to consider at that very moment that, that we live, every luxury that we enjoy, every blessing that we participate in is a matter of receiving the grace of God, that it represents God's willingness to be patient with a race of people who have rebelled against him. God has called every human being to perfection. We are not allowed to sin. The penalty of sin is death, and yet we continue to sin and become astonished and offended when God allows suffering. God doesn't reveal to us all the micro reasons for pain and suffering being allowed, but he does reveal some macro, some big picture reasons as to why pain and suffering happen. We're not going to get into this a whole bunch right now, but living online all the time on our website is um, past sermons. 
And we did a whole sermon series called Turbulence. And it touched on some different things, some common sufferings. You can go look there if you want a more complete treatment on it. But the big idea was this. That suffering causes us to rely on God. Suffering has a means of purifying us. Suffering sometimes is a natural consequences, a natural consequence of just choices we've made. We've planted seeds, and God has chosen not to step in and break the cycle of what those seeds eventually grow and the fruit that they produce. The idea of turbulence was this: that for the believer, any turbulence we experience on this cross-country flight is non-life-threatening for the eternal life. Like your eternal life is not being threatened by this current storm that you're in. And there's a hope in that. As we fly through, we go, you know what? We know we're making it safely. As scary as it gets, as bad as this gets, we are promised that this is a a non-eternal life-threatening event happening in my life. Let me give you the big reason that this scripture screams at, a macro reason as to why God allows pain and evil and suffering on this planet. They are allowed to lead us to repentance. They are allowed in our life so that the survivors of that tower tragedy would wake up and ask deeper questions than what's on sale this week. We don't have time to go into it, but just think about 9-11. Wasn't there a national awakening, a national, a national consciousness There was certainly in churches, we all felt it as pastors, there was a surge of people asking deeper, bigger questions after 9-11. Events like that tend to wake people up. They finally seek out a savior. Some of you right now have some small pain, something weird going on. You complain about it to your people, but you don't go to the doctor. Why don't you go to the doctor? Because it's small. If you are bleeding out on the living room, you say, I think we need to reschedule everything for today and get me to the hospital right now. Why? Because there's an urgency to bleeding out and seeing all of your liquids that should be inside your body working for you spilling on the floor. All of a sudden, do you have time for the doctor? Oh yeah, you got time for the doctor. That's essentially what what one of the macro reasons that God allows pain and evil and suffering to go on. Jesus taught his followers to be ready every single day. He pointed out that the day of judgment, the return of Jesus would come when you least expect it. You won't have time all of a sudden to light your lamp. You won't have time to go and get oil for your lamp. All these things, we just saw that in the scriptures a couple of weeks ago. This illustrates the truth. Do you see there was no time for last minute good deeds? There was no time for last minute getting on your knees and repenting to God when a tower falls on you? This illustrates the truth he's trying to say to you, that there is a season of time that we're in, and we must be ready every single day. And he repeats this phrase, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That can't mean that we're all going to have towers fall on us. It's not that repeated event. It can't mean that we're going to have our blood spilled and then mixed with animals by, by some wicked person. He is pointing to something broader and bigger, that there's an eternal death that can be avoided. Grace is your only hope. Grace, period. Grace alone is what will keep you from calamity today and on judgment day. This is the first part of our title. Grace, period. 
Isn't it powerful we don't need to live self-righteous because all of our righteous deeds come to absolutely nothing on the grand scale? Doesn't this release us from our fear? What if something big is going to happen in my life because of something I've done? Doesn't this release us from the exhaustion of like working harder and harder and doing more and more and hoping someone somewhere is keeping score and seeing all this and overlooking the bad? Do not waste your pain, church. Grow from it. Let the bad news that comes to you point to just how great the good news really is. All suffering for those in Christ are but labor pains that will give birth to joy, period. One of the things that's powerful about teaching through the Scripture, I say this often, I saw it again this week, is that side by side living in this small text are two giant truths of the gospel. Here they are. The urgent need for repentance and forgiveness of sin or else certain death awaits. That's what we just saw. And, ready? Here's the second part. The grace and forbearance of God. His patience so that sinners might turn and repent. That's where we're going right now. So these two passages just live side by side. And if you sit and think with it for a little bit, the reason I have to is I have a deadline called preaching Sunday. So I just sit with text longer than some people. And it emerges. Here's the gospel. The really good news that leads to how great the really good news is. Verse 6, follow along with me. Here's the second part. Where is Jesus? And, be, and he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the good ground? Or why should it use up the ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure and, and put on manure. Then if it should bear no fruit, and then, then if it should bear fruit next year, well, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this gets to this question: where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back? Again, I'm not going to give a complete answer, but I'm going to give part of the reason. Here's the big idea: it's patience. It's time for the trees that aren't bearing fruit to bear fruit. Now, we're going to dig into this metaphor a little bit, but you already see it. Do you notice the violence of this phrase, cut it down? And chop this thing down, it's done. And then there's this intercession, this vine dresser that intercedes and gives, gives this request, let it alone. Do you hear patience in that? Give it another season. I know it's been a season. Let's give it more time. And then what's powerful is the vine dresser doesn't just say let it alone and see if things change on their own. Do you see the vine dresser engages the tree? What does the vine dresser do? The vine dresser messes with the tree, starts to dig around it, starts to take manure and put it on the tree. So that the tree will be shamed and smell bad? No, that's not the reason. The vine dresser has really, really good intentions and so engages. The goal is not to make the tree miserable, but to bear fruit, to repent. In another sort of turn and burn message of Jesus, this time in Luke chapter 3, he's calling out the Pharisees who have no fruit and he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There are things that emerge from your life 
that reveal a heart that's, that's living a repentant lifestyle. And Jesus calls out that that's what's to happen. One quick note about manure. Not a gardener, don't ever claim to be, but you know that manure is not only not a quick fix, right? You don't put manure on it and then sit there and watch for something to happen quickly. Manure being added to your life. This is profound. The manure being added to my life is not a quick fix. What else is true about manure? Adding manure to my life is not an appealing fix. The work of the vine dresser around this tree, the way that he engages is he digs, he messes with it. He disrupts what's normally going on that's not producing fruit. And then adding intentionally manure to it is also as a slow and unappealing fix. You know, getting in tune with God's timing requires a complete shift of mind. One of the hardest things for people in this valley are to do what the vine dresser says with this, let it alone. Don't do anything. Parents, isn't this hard sometimes? Don't hover. Don't be right there making the decision. Let it alone. Do absolutely nothing. You know who else has a hard time with this sometimes? Your mentors, pastors, coaches, teachers. There is something to, to be said for let it alone. We are a quick-fix generation. We're a quick-fix quick valley. You don't produce, boom, chop it down, get it out. Let's put something else in there. You don't have to raise your hand. I already know the answer. But who's thankful for the patience of God in our lives? Man, that's what, that's what this parable ought to stir up in us. What's also powerful is this. It can, it can allow us with tears to thank God for manure. We can with tears say, God, thank you for messing with me. Thank you for letting me alone. Thank you for not leaving me alone. You also dig around. You've added manure to my life. Manure contains all this wonder-working enzymes and microorganisms, and they work their small, imperceptible magic in my life. And I have fruit to bear, and I have a different season. I can look back and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for the manure in my life. You know, fig tree is a common imagery for Israel. So Jesus is speaking in code that would have been really easily understood by those listening. Israel was in a kind of grace period. Jesus was sent, and his ministry was to do what all prophets before him had done before. Stir up the norm. The tree wasn't bearing fruit. Dig. Add some manure. Jesus was pronouncing what all prophets before him said. Hey, there's a grace period that's ending. Repent or you will certainly perish. Turn or burn is what Jesus was saying. And like all the prophets before him, what happened? He was ignored for the most part, despised, and this time, not all prophets were killed, but this time killed. Why? Because he preached forth, he heralded the message of warning and comfort that comes from God. You know what the result of Israel as a nation was? In 70 AD, what happened to Jerusalem? <sighs> Utterly destroyed. People in Jesus' day would not have been able to imagine what went on in a few short years from the end of Jesus' life. 
So there was a prophetic warning talking about the immediate context. Israel, you are in a grace period. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And for the nation of Israel, generally, that did not occur. Israel was in a grace period. We are in a grace period. It couldn't be more clear in the New Testament. There is a time coming when the vine dresser will concede and say, yep, chop it down. Now's the day for all trees to be chopped down that aren't bearing fruit. This is a grace period that we are in. Look at this passage that's familiar to us, but it sheds light on what what we're talking about. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Jesus, where are you? You promised to come back. I'm hurting. It smells stinky around here. Where are you? But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why all the bad? It's to lead us to the good news. Where's Jesus? He's withholding the chopping down season that's coming. He's being patient. That's where he is. I want to just close with this picture of Jesus as the good doctor. And as we think about this this sort of um, series where we've called it the good doctor, remember that's a play on the idea that Luke was a family physician. He was a doctor. Typical of Luke, he, he, he lays out the illness both in duration of time and specifically sort of what was going on. And it highlights the greatness of Jesus' cure. Look at verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had, been, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he messed with her. He engaged. Listen, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, not to Jesus, to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Verse 15, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things. All his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. I'm going to let you discuss this as community groups, but there's all kinds of bondage that this woman is freed from. Not the least of which is this. Because of her gender and because of her disability, she had no voice in this. So often, you have felt this. Just like the wicked Galileans who must have done something to deserve that thing done to them by Pilate. And just like those people on whom the tower fell... People attach circumstances and bad things to your character. You begin to be, in other people's eyes, your circumstances and the sin perpetrated by you and against you. That certainly seemed to be the case with this woman. 
She's almost a non-participant. What does Jesus do? A part of his loosing, a part of his freeing, we've been seeing about this all morning, is that he frees her by, by naming her a daughter of Abraham. This preaches loud to the Israelite people. That's a big deal. He's restoring the glory that exists on her, watch this, simply because she is. Just because she exists. And he lifts her out of her prison. Now the whole context of Sabbath uh, is just a hotbed of emotion. Couldn't Jesus have just as easily done this the next day? He does this. He initiates it. He sees her, calls her to him. So he initiates this on the Sabbath to teach us something. And the results that we see are exactly what Jesus has been teaching. There's a division that comes when the light enters the darkness. Some people rejoice. Some people are, are not that thrilled. And that's exactly what we see. There's humiliation on the part of Jesus' opponents. There's rejoicing by the multitudes who recognize that power is being used not to pad their own comfort as a leader, but to serve the way God intended. And there's great rejoicing that goes on with that. Jesus actually rebukes the leaders because their own actions show that they have a clear understanding of this. You wouldn't leave your animal to suffer without water, so you untie it to go relieve suffering, and yet you won't take this woman and relieve her of her suffering. You understand Sabbath law. You understand it's not meant to let people live in suffering. You understand that based on your own actions. And yet the religious referees called out to the crowd, hey, stop doing this on the Sabbath. We can do this all these other days of the week. Jesus wants to come and redeem it. Don't treat this woman as worse than one of your animals. I want to have the band come on up right now. And as they do, a couple of closing thoughts. What Jesus does for this woman can be done for you. Some of you have testimonies that you could say, here's exactly what Jesus freed me from. Here are the kinds of prisons that he redeemed me from. Here are the kinds of lies that his truth and light came and exposed in my life. Here's the faulty storylines and logic that used to lead me to all these other actions that have been redeemed because God came and told me what was actually going on, interpreting uh, rightly. Jesus calling her daughter of Abraham. We just sang this, that we are children of God because God says that about us. Bad news often drives people to question God's morality, others' morality, and, and misinterpretation. Hear me, church. God is not absent. Jesus doesn't avoid the hard. He brings up more hard. He engages and he sheds truth on it. If you are suffering and in tragedy today, use it as a warning and an invitation to repent. If you receive bad news of some tragedy, the tempter will put in your mind, how could God allow that to happen? Instead, let it see the grievousness of sin. The wicked rebel against God every single day. All day, all moments, the rules are being violated. God is staying his just hand. Let suffering be a grace that leads you to the most important healing. I want to read this 
from a devotional I've been reading by Paul David Tripp. And he's just kind of walking through Psalm 51, a verse at a time. And I've just been taking one short thing per week and just sort of meditating on it. And what I want to steer your mind to is this. As we prepare for communion, we're going to sing a song. I'll come back up and lead us how we're going to do communion. But as we prepare for communion, think about this, that all pain can be redeemed by God. So the pain of repentance, it's very difficult to humble yourself and repent. The pain of repentance gives birth to forgiveness and freedom and truth reigning and ruling in your life. Listen to this from Paul David Tripp. He says, if you and I are willing at all to humbly and honestly look at our lives, we will be forced to conclude that we are flawed human beings. And yet we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to work to minimize or deny our failures. We don't have to be defensive when our weaknesses are revealed. We don't have to rewrite our own histories and make ourselves look better than we actually are. We don't have to be paralyzed by remorse or regret. We don't have to distract ourselves with busyness or drug ourselves with substances. Isn't it wonderful that we can share our deepest, darkest failures, stare our deepest, darkest failures in the face and be unafraid? Isn't it comforting that we can honestly face our most regretful moments and not be devastated? Isn't it amazing that we can confess that we really are sinners and neither be fearful nor depressed. God, it is only because of grace, period, that we can do what this author just described. Many of us, as we heard this read, it enlivens us. It's our experience. It reminds us that we don't have to go and cover ourselves with fig leaves before the God who sees and knows all. God, I pray for Christians in this room who name your name, who are walking with you. God, that we could stand on the firm footing of saying, we don't know all the reasons, of course. But we trust the one who's in charge. We trust his timetable. Every single time we see pain and suffering, every time we feel it in ourselves, we are reminded that with all of creation, we are groaning. Of course there's pain in the labor and delivery room. We look forward to our birthday, to a a renewal that's coming. And God, we can't wait for that day. And we joyfully, in all things, remain hopeful in this day. God, to the unbeliever, to the undecided this morning, I pray this seemingly harsh word of why pain and suffering? Well, if there's pain and suffering for them, it's going to come on you unless there's repentance. God, I pray you would use that word to cut like a beam of light to give explanation and footing for a person to begin to find their way to you, although you are not far away from each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.